Section 14 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 9. The Emperor's Marriage. Part 2. Unhappily, the revived imperialism of Louis-Napoleon was not, like legitimacy, a cause, but to most persons who supported it, it was a speculation. Adherents had therefore to be attracted to it by hopes of gain, and all services had to be handsomely rewarded. The emperor's policy in the early years of his reign may be said to have been twofold. He wanted to make France increase in material prosperity, and he wished to have money freely spent within her borders. He set on foot all kinds of improvements in Paris, and all kinds of useful enterprises in the provinces. Work was plenty, money flowed freely. The empire was everywhere popular. But the government of France was the government of one man, and if anything happened to that one man, where would be the government? There seemed no need to ask that question while France was prosperous and Paris gay. France under the Second Empire was quieter than she had been for any eighteen years since the Great Revolution, and for that she was grateful to Napoleon III. His foreign policy was still more successful. The empire is peace, he had early proclaimed to be his motto. At first the idea of a Napoleon on the throne of France had greatly terrified the nations but by degrees it seemed as if he really meant to be the napoleon of peace as his uncle had been the napoleon of war he took every opportunity of reiterating his desire to be on good terms with his neighbours with respect to england those who knew him best asserted earnestly that he had always been in sympathy with the country that had sheltered him in exile count walewski whom he sent over as ambassador to london was very popular there he attended the funeral of the duke of wellington in his official capacity and in return for this courtesy England restored to the French emperor his uncle's will, which had been laid up in doctors' commons with other wills of persons who had died on English soil. Russia was haughty to the new emperor, but the other courts of Europe accepted him, and most of them did so with considerable alacrity. For was he not holding down socialism and internationalism, which they dreaded far more than Napoleonism, and by which they were menaced in their own lands? The great perplexity of the new emperor was his relation to Italy. He and his brother had taken the oath of a Carbonero in that country in 1831. It is not to this day certain that his brother did not die by a Carbonero's knife, rather than by the measles. Be that as it may, Louis-Napoleon knew that if he failed to keep his promises as to the liberation of Italy, assassination awaited him. How he endeavoured to reconcile his engagements as a Carbonero with his policy as the French Emperor belongs less to the historical gossip of France than to that of Italy so too the history of the crimean war seems to belong par excellence to that of russia it was undertaken by england and france as allies joined afterwards by a sardinian army under general la marmora by the turkish troops under omar pasha and by an egyptian contingent but as we are now engaged on the personal history of the emperor and empress i will rather here tell how napoleon the third having formed a camp of one hundred thousand soldiers at boulogne on the very ground where his uncle had assembled his great army for the invasion of england decided to ascertain through his ambassador in london if it would be agreeable to prince albert to visit that camp and see the manoeuvres of his army finding that the invitation would be acceptable to the prince he addressed him the following letter july three eighteen fifty four mon frere your royal highness knows that putting in practice your own idea and wishing to carry out to the end the struggle with Russia that we have begun together, I have decided to form an army between Boulogne and Saint-Omer. I need not tell your highness how pleased I should be to see you, 
and how happy I should be to show you my soldiers. I am convinced, moreover, that personal ties will strengthen the union so happily established between two great nations. I beg you to present my respectful homage to the Queen, and to receive this expression of the esteem and sincere affection I have conceived for you. With this, mon frère, I pray God to have you in his holy keeping. Napoleon. The prince accepted the invitation, addressing the emperor as Sire et mon frère. The queen entirely approved the visit, and Baron Stockmar predicted much advantage from it, quote, inasmuch, he said, as the good or evil destiny of the present time will directly and chiefly depend upon a rational, honourable, and resolute alliance between England and France. End quote. Prince Albert met the emperor at Boulogne, September 4, 1854. The Duke of Newcastle, who was in attendance on Prince Albert, wrote to a friend that tears stood in the Emperor's eyes when he received his guest as he stepped upon French soil, and the Prince wrote that evening to the Queen, quote, The Emperor has been very nervous, if we are to believe those who stood near him and who know him well. He was kindly and courteous, and does not look so old nor so pale as his portraits make him, and is much gayer than he is generally represented. The visit cannot fail to be a source of great gratification to him. I have had two long talks with him, in which he spoke very sensibly about the war and the question du jour. People here are sanguine about the results of the expedition to the Crimea, and very sensitive about the behaviour of Admiral Sir Charles Napier." The Prince adds in his letter, the same evening, quote, "'The Emperor thaws more and more. This evening after dinner I withdrew with him to his sitting-room for half an hour before rejoining his guests, in order that he might smoke his cigarette, in which occupation, to his amazement, I could not keep him company. He told me that one of the deepest impressions ever made on him was, when having gone from France to Rio Janeiro and thence to the United States, and being recalled to Europe by the rumour of his mother's serious illness, he arrived in London directly after King William's death, and saw you going to open Parliament for the first time." Subsequently the Prince tells the Queen, quote, "'We discussed all topics of home and foreign policy, material and personal, with the greatest frankness, and I can say but good of what I heard. He was brought up in the German fashion in Germany, a training which has developed a German turn of mind. As to all modern political history, so far as this is not Napoleonic, he is without information, so that he wants many of the materials for accurate judgment." Dickens, who was at Boulogne on this occasion, thus tells of Prince Albert's arrival, quote, The town looks like one immense flag, it is so decked out with streamers and as the royal yacht approached yesterday, the whole range of the cliff-tops was lined with troops, and the artillerymen, matches in hand, stood ready to fire the great guns the moment she made the harbour, the sailors standing up in the prow of the yacht, the prince, in a blazing uniform, left alone on the deck for everybody to see. A stupendous silence, and then such an infernal blazing and banging as never was heard. It was almost as fine a sight as one could see under a deep blue sky." While the guest of the Emperor, Prince Albert expressed to him the Queen's hope that they should see him in England, and that she should make the acquaintance of the Empress. The Prince, an excellent judge of character, in a subsequent memorandum concerning his impressions, says, quote, The Emperor appeared quiet and indolent from constitution, not easily excited, but gay and humorous when at his ease. His French is not without a little German accent, and his pronunciation of German is better than of English. He recited a poem by Schiller on the advantages to man of peace and war, which seemed to have made a deep impression upon him, and appeared to me to be not without significance with reference to his own life. His court and household are strictly kept and in good order, more English than French. The gentlemen composing his entourage are not distinguished by birth, 
manners, or education. He lives on a familiar footing with them, although they seemed afraid of him. The tone was rather that of a garrison, with a good deal of smoking. He is very chilly, complains of rheumatism, and goes early to bed, takes no pleasure in music, but is proud of his horsemanship." Speaking again of the Emperor's lack of information as to the history of politics, Prince Albert says, quote, "'But he is remarkably modest in acknowledging these defects, and in not pretending to know what he does not. All that relates to Napoleonic politics he has at his fingers' ends. He also appears to have thought much and deeply on politics, yet more like an amateur politician, mixing many very sound and very crude notions together. He admires English institutions, and regrets the absence of an aristocracy in France, but might not be willing to allow such an aristocracy to control his own power, whilst he might wish to have the advantage of its control over the pure democracy." The Emperor closely questioned the Prince about the working of the English government and the Queen's relations to her ministers. Prince Albert writes, quote, He said that he did not allow his ministers to meet or to discuss matters together, that they transacted their business solely with him. He seemed astonished when I told him that every dispatch went through the Queen's hands and was read by her, as he only received extracts made from them, and indeed appeared to have little time or inclination generally to read. When I observed to him that the Queen would not be content without seeing the whole of the diplomatic correspondence, he replied that he found a full compensation in having persons in his own employ and confidence at the different posts of importance, who reported solely to him. I could not but express my sense of the danger of such an arrangement, to which no statesman, in England at least, would submit." I have noted this memorandum of Prince Albert's because it points out the perils which led to the downfall of the Empire. The Emperor's bad entourage, his personal government, assisted only by private confidential relations with irresponsible persons, his mixture of crude and sensible ideas of government, his indolence, and his tendency to let things slide out of his own hands. Quote, Upon the whole, concluded the Prince, my impression is that neither in home nor foreign politics would the Emperor naturally take any violent step but that he appears in distress for means of governing, and is obliged to look about him from day to day. Having deprived the people of any active participation in the government, and reduced them to the mere position of spectators, they grow impatient, like a crowd at a display of fireworks, whenever there is any cessation in the display. Still, he appears the only man who has any hold on France, relying on the name of Napoleon. He said to the Duke of Newcastle, "'Former governments have tried to reign by the support of one million of the educated classes.' I claim to lay hold of the other twenty-nine. He is decidedly benevolent, and anxious for the good of the people, but has, like all rulers before him, a bad opinion of their political capacity." Strange to say, in the midst of war, the Universal Exposition of 1855 took place in Paris. The winter was horribly severe, and the armies in the Crimea suffered terribly. The Emperor was extremely desirous to go himself to the seat of war but was urged by every one about him to remain at home. All kinds of good reasons were put forward for this advice, but probably not the one subsequently advanced by one of his generals after the campaign of Italy in 1859. Quote, it used to be said that the presence of the first Napoleon with his army was worth a reinforcement of forty thousand men. The army now feels that the presence of the third Napoleon equals the loss of about the same number." We have seen that Queen Victoria had expressed a wish to welcome the Emperor and Empress at Windsor Castle. It was on April 16, 1855, that the imperial pair reached England, and were received by Prince Albert on board their yacht. They met with a hearty national greeting on their way to London. In London itself, crowds lined the streets. Quote, it was, says an eyewitness, one bewildering triumph, 
in which it was estimated that a million of people took part. The Times reporter noticed that as the Emperor passed his old residence in King Street, St. James, he pointed it out to the Empress as the place where he was living when the events of 1848 summoned him to Paris. Quote, Only seven years before, observes his biographer Mr. Gerald, he was wont to stroll unnoticed, with his faithful dog at his heels, from this house to the newsvendor's stall by the Burlington Arcade, to get the latest news from revolutionary France. Now he was the guest of the English people, on his way through cheering crowds to Windsor Castle, where the Queen was waiting in the vestibule to receive him." The same rooms were prepared for him that had been given to Louis-Philippe and to the Emperor Nicolas. Queen Victoria tells us in her diary, quote, "'I cannot say what indescribable emotions filled me, how much all seemed like a wonderful dream. I advanced and embraced the Emperor, and then the very gentle, graceful, and evidently nervous Empress. We presented the princes and our children, Vicky, with very alarmed eyes, making very low curtsies. The Emperor embraced Bertie, and then he went upstairs.' Albert leading the Empress, who, in the most engaging manner, refused to go first, but at length, with graceful reluctance, did so, the Emperor leading me, and expressing his great gratification in being here, and seeing me, and admiring Windsor." At dinner, on the day of his arrival, the new ruler of France seems to have charmed the Queen. Quote, he is, she records in her journal, so very quiet. His voice is low and soft. Et il ne fait pas des phrases. When the war was talked about, the Emperor spoke of his wish to go out to the Crimea, and the Queen noticed that the Empress was as eager as himself that he should go. Quote, she sees no greater danger for him there, she adds, than in Paris. She said she was seldom alarmed for him, except when he went out quite alone of a morning. She is full of courage and spirit, and yet so gentle, with such innocence and enjouement, that the ensemble is most charming. With all her great liveliness, she has the prettiest and most modest manner." The Queen little guessed what commotion and excitement had gone on before dinner in the private apartments of the Emperor and Empress, when it was discovered that the case containing all the beautiful toilet prepared for the occasion had not arrived. The Emperor suggested to his wife to retire to rest on the plea of fatigue after the journey, but she decided to borrow a blue silk dress from one of her ladies-in-waiting, in which, with only flowers in her hair, she increased the Queen's impression of her simplicity and modesty. During the visit, the Emperor asked the Queen where Louis-Philippe's widow, Queen Marie-Amélie, was living. She had been at Windsor Castle only a few days before, and the Queen had looked sorrowfully after her as she drove away, with shabby post-horses, to her residence near Richmond. The Emperor begged Her Majesty to express to Louis-Philippe's widow his hope that she would not hesitate to pass through France on any journey she might make to Spain. There was a review of the household troops, commanded by Lord Cardigan, who had led the charge of the Light Brigade at Balaclava and who rode the same charger. The emperor rode a fiery, beautiful chestnut, and his horsemanship was much admired. That evening there was a state ball at Windsor Castle, and the queen danced a quadrille with the emperor. The queen wrote that evening in her journal, quote, How strange to think that I, the granddaughter of George III, should dance with the emperor Napoleon, nephew of England's greatest enemy, now my nearest and most intimate ally, in the Waterloo Room, and that ally living in this country only six years ago in exile, poor and unthought of." She adds, speaking of the Empress, quote, "'Her manner is the most perfect thing I have ever seen, so gentle and graceful and kind, and the courtesy is charming, so modest and retiring withal." The next day came a council attended by the Emperor, 
Prince Albert, ministers, and diplomatists, which lasted so very long that the Queen herself knocked at the door, and reminded them that at four o'clock the Emperor was to be invested with the Order of the Garter. After this ceremony was over, the Emperor remarked to the Queen that he had now sworn fidelity to Her Majesty, and would carefully keep his oath. At dinner that day the talk fell on assassination. The Emperor was shot at by a Carbonero only a few days after his return from Windsor, and four years later by Orsini. Before leaving England, the Emperor attended a banquet given to him by the Lord Mayor. At Windsor he read his speech, in English, to the Queen and Prince, who pronounced it a very good one. Next day the royalties went to see the Crystal Palace at Sydenham. There they were surrounded by sight-seeing throngs, and in such a crowd there was every chance for a pistol-shot from some French or Italian refugee. Quote, "'I own I felt anxious,' writes the Queen. "'I felt as I walked, leaning on the Emperor's arm, that I was possibly a protection to him.'" Afterwards she writes, quote, "'On all this visit has left a permanent satisfactory impression. It went off so well, not a contretemps. Fine weather, everything smiling, the nation enthusiastic and happy in the alliance of two great countries whose enmity would be fatal. I am glad to have known this extraordinary man, whom it is certainly not possible not to like when you live with him, and not, even to a considerable extent, to admire. I believe him capable of kindness, affection, friendship, gratitude. I feel confidence in him as regards the future. I think he is frank, means well to us, and, as Stockmar says, that we have ensured his sincerity and good faith to us for the rest of his life." Nearly a year after this visit, when the Emperor and Empress had been married about three years, the Prince Imperial was born, March 16, 1856. A few hours after his birth he was christened Napoleon Eugène Louis-Jean-Joseph. Pope Pius IX was his godfather, the Queen of Sweden his godmother. For many hours the Empress, like her imperial predecessor Marie-Louise, was dangerously ill. The Crimean War had by that time virtually come to a triumphant end. The Emperor had at last an heir. All things appeared to smile upon him. A general amnesty was issued to all political offenders. The Emperor became godfather and the Empress godmother to all legitimate children born in France upon their son's birthday, and finally the little prince had a public baptism at Notre-Dame, followed by a ball of extraordinary magnificence, given by the city of Paris to the mother of the heir apparent, at the Hôtel de Ville. The chief trouble that menaced the imperial throne at this period was the extraordinary lavishness which the emperor's entourage of speculative adventures encouraged him to incur in all directions. The recklessness of speculation, the general mania for gain that went on around him, there had also been terrible inundations in France, and a bad harvest. Many things also that disgusted and disquieted the Emperor were going on among the persons who surrounded him, persons in whom he had placed confidence, and it was one of his good qualities that he was always slow to believe evil. Still, these things were forced on his attention, and greatly disturbed him. His little son was from the first his idol. Here is a letter he wrote to Prince Albert, acknowledging Queen Victoria's congratulations. Quote, I have been greatly touched to learn that all your family have shared my joy, and all my hope is that my son may resemble dear little Prince Arthur, and that he may have the rare qualities of your children. The sympathy shown on the late occasion by the English people is another bond between the two countries, and I hope my son will inherit my feelings of true friendship for the royal family of England, and of affectionate esteem for the great English nation." A few months later the future Emperor Frederick, then recently engaged to the Princess Royal of England, visited Paris. He was attended by Major Baron von Moltke, who described the Emperor, Empress, and their court in letters to his friends. Quote, 
the empress he says is of astonishing beauty with a slight elegant figure and dressing with much taste and richness but without ostentation she is very talkative and lively much more so than is usual with persons occupying so high a position the emperor impressed me by a sort of immobility of features and the almost extinguished look of his eyes this look by the way was cultivated by the emperor when his early playfellow madame cornu saw him after twelve years separation her first exclamation was quote, why what have you done to your eyes the prominent characteristic of the emperor's face continues von moltke is a friendly good-natured smile which has nothing napoleonic about it he mostly sits quietly with his head on one side and events have shown that this tranquillity which is very imposing to the restless french nation is not apathy but a sign of a superior mind and a strong will he is an emperor and not a king affairs in france are not in a normal condition but it would be difficult to say how under present circumstances they could be improved napoleon the third has nothing of the sombre sternness of his uncle neither his imperial demeanour nor his deliberate attitude he is a quite simple and somewhat small man whose always tranquil countenance gives a strong impression of amiability he never gets angry say the people round him he is always polite he suffers from a want of men of ability to uphold him he cannot make use of men of independent character who insist on having their own notions as the direction of affairs of state must be concentrated in his hands greater liberty ought to be conceded in a regulated state of society but in the present state of france there must be a strong and single direction which is besides best adapted to the french character freedom of the press is for the present as impossible here as it would be at the headquarters of an army in the field if the press wished to discuss the measures taken by the general in command napoleon has shown wisdom firmness self-confidence but also moderation and clemency and though simple in his dress he does not forget that the french people like to see their sovereigns surrounded by a brilliant court of the imperial baby in his nurse's arms on whom the father looked with a face radiant with pride and joy von moltke remarks quote, truly he seems a strapping fellow the little prince grew up a very promising lad he was his father's idol louis napoleon never could be brought to bring him any sterner reproof than quote, louis don't be foolish ne fais pas des bêtises discipline was left to his mother and it was popularly felt that she was much less wrapped up in the child than his father was his especial talent was for drawing and sculpture some of his sketches of which facsimiles are given in gerald's quote, life of napoleon the third are very spirited and when he could get a lump of wet clay to play with he made busts of the persons round him which were excellent likenesses the emperor's rooms at the tuileries were rather low and dark but he selected them because they communicated with those of the empress in the pavillon de flore by a narrow winding staircase often in the day would she come down to him or he ascend to her his study was filled with napoleonic relics and littered with political and historical papers he kept a large room with models of new inventions which were a great delight to him and to his son he was fond of wood-turning and and he would often make pretty rustic chairs for the park at st cloud for some years before his overthrow he was growing very feeble, and always carried a cane surmounted with a gold eagle. Commonly, too, some chosen friend, generally Fleury, gave him his arm, but he always walked in silence. In the afternoon he would drive out, and sometimes horrify the police by getting out of his carriage and walking alone in distant quarters of the city. On one occasion he had a difference of opinion with one of his friends, who assured him that if he insisted on planting an open space in the Faubourg Saint-Antoine with flowers, and protected it by no railing, 
the flowers would very speedily be destroyed. His pleasure and exultation were very great when he found that he had been right, and that not a flower had been plucked or broken. The emperor was generally gay and ready to converse at table, but he made it a rule never to criticize or discuss living persons himself, or allow others to do so in his hearing. There was much decorum at court so far as his influence extended in the imperial circle, but there were plenty of scandals outside of it, and as to money matters, even Persigny and Fleury, one the friend of the emperor for five-and-twenty years, and the other devotedly attached to him, could not restrain themselves from cheating him and tricking him whenever they could. End of chapter 9 End of section 14